Hey, Jeff. Uh, yeah, Rick. What's up? Since I have been working from home, I've been doing a lot of cleaning and organizing and, you know, really just annoying my wife. Yeah? Well, uh, two-thirds of that's different, so that's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Well, what I was trying to get at, while that while I was organizing my graphic novels and trade paperback shelves, I noticed something. Okay, I'll buy it. Uh, what did you notice? Well... You remember the six and a half pound power pack omnibus book that I bought recently that's got like three names on the spine? Well, uh, the obvious names on it would be Louise Simonson and June Brigman. Hmm. I'm gonna guess that the third name is John Bogdanov? <laughs> Look at the big brain on Jeff. Correct, sir. That got me thinking that we have interviewed two of those three power pack creators. We are missing one of the big three, and that's a problem. You see, I'm a completist, and I want the complete set. But how do we convince one of the great writers and artists of our time to drop what he's doing and come on our little show? How about putting out a stack of comic books and a nice stout beer? I've fallen into that trap more than I can remember. You know, Jeff, I really love doing this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Listener to our podcast, Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer. Analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures and absorbing alcohol. I am Jeff. I am Rick. And I'm John. And I would like to extend a warm welcome to our guest, John Bogdanov. Thank you very much for joining us here today. I'm happy to be here. We are very, very happy to have you here. This is a real honor for us because, you know, not only are you one of the three great creators, actually there's been many great creators on Powerback, but one of the three great creators that were on, that's on my nice omnibus book, but also you have also been responsible for a lot of other series that I have really liked over the years as well. Fantastic Four and the X-Men, Exterminators, a whole bunch of other stuff. You are a great writer, a great artist, and... From what we can tell, a pretty good all-around guy as well. So this is a real, real honor for us to have you here. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, really. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, I love listening to it while I draw. You guys are <laughs> immensely entertaining. Uh, I love it when Carrie comes on and voices, uh, voices Katie. She should play her in the movies, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but no, I, I really love what you guys do. And you always make me want beer. <laughs> well... You know, speaking of that, I managed to find something. It's, it's not a stout, and we are more stout drinkers, but as I was going through and looking for beers for different shows, I did find a beer that I thought, I'm buying this because I know we're going to be interviewing you, and it really conveyed something that I wanted to share. So, Jeff, I, I dropped off a beer for this interview that is in the nice little paper bag. Please go ahead and Surprise yourself and surprise John with our selection for a beer this week. Mm-hmm. What do we have in the old crinkle bag? We have a can of trapdoor brewing. Thank you. Have a nice day. Yeah. Oh, hazy oh. India pale ale. So I just thought <laughs> I saw this and I said, we're going to talk to a great creator that all we want to do is just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you have done. Yes, it's an IPA, not a stout, but, you know, I think the messages are going across to you. Well, uh, let's find out how hopsy this is and if it's a flowery hops or a 
bitter hops or what do you got there? I don't know. We'll find out. It's got 6.9 or 6.8% alcohol by volume. It's an hazy India pale ale, like said from Trapdoor Brewing. That's hoppy smelling. And that is hazy. I like the can on this. It is very basic. It is just a white label with red and white lettering that says thank you on it repetitively. Have a nice day. And uh, it's got a big old story time on it. But I'm just going to say that story time is recycle this can because <laughs> it looks like it was made in Oregon. Oh, I like that. Yep. Yeah, it's it definitely has the, the uh, hoppy smell, flowery notes. It's, it's very... Um, Smells flower hops. Yeah, flower hops. It's got a very strong. It, it's not the bitter smell. No, it's, it's not. It's it's, it's, it's a sweet flower smell on the hops, which is really nice. Because sometimes you get those hops and it just really kind of like tingles, and tangs in on your nose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this just kind of like, oh, that's pretty pleasant. It's very very floral and very sweet. And then the color on that looks like wheat. Yeah. That you cannot see very, through. Very it does. Yeah, that is opaque. Yeah. I kind of oh. like this. This is uh, this is actually very sweet. It does not have a bitter hop taste at all. Is it nice and cold? It, it's nice and cold. My glass isn't cold, but this uh, this came out of the refrigerator not too long ago. Mine's nice and cold. I pulled the glass out of the freezer, and I put the can in the uh, freezer for two hours before, and then put it in the fridge to make sure it was going to be nice and crisp. This is a very nice... It does not have the real... It doesn't have any bitter bite no. to it at all. It's actually got a kind of a sweet forward taste that ends up being very mellow. I'm not even getting any pine or any other kind of traditional IPA. I am a little bit. It starts off and it's kind of like, oh, it's a little bit of fizz on the tongue. And then it kind of migrates from the front of the tongue to the back, just in the center where it's just, it's kind of got that little bit of kind of like raw citrus yeah. kind of pine needle kind of thing going on. Really subtle though. And then it does. it That flows away and then it just leaves a really like mouth sweetness, which is interesting yeah. and pretty cool it, it definitely has a definitely has a nice citrus mm-hmm. punch to it though more along the lines of the a mm, little bit more of the orange citrus rather than the grapefruit grapefruit citrus yeah i'd agree to that little uh yeah little orange citrus and uh juniper yeah. notes is really what it kind of getting out of that yes for an ipa not bad no, at pleasant all. for today too because it's like uh 85 or something oh yeah no uh so that was the beer that I that I brought just to say thank you as well. We've got tons of questions that we want to get to. I'm just going to start asking a few of them, if you don't mind. Sure. And we can kind of find out a little bit more about you and, and uh, your journey to Power Pack and what you've done leading up to it and what you've done after it. First of all, what type of childhood did you have? What did you read and what did you do when you were a child? Uh, what did I do when I was a child? I loved comics. I didn't collect a bunch of comics because... As a kid, I didn't necessarily have, at least as a young kid, I didn't have access to any more money than I could collect in terms of pop bottles. I would get a comic book whenever I had the money and the opportunity to do it, but what I wasn't able to invest in continuity those days, which wasn't such a big deal. More comics were done in one. It was was easier to pick up something in the middle of a run and, and know what was going on with it. As I approached my teens, I was working more often and making you know, more pocket money to spend on comics. And that's a good thing because that's about the time I discovered Jack Kirby. I'd seen a few Kirby's and Ditko's in the early days of Marvel, but in those days I was so young, I was too young to really know or care too much about who's drawing what. But when I turned 12, I guess, Jack came to work at, at DC and started the New Gods and Mr. Miracle and, uh, and the Forever People. And he took over Jimmy Olsen, which blew my mind. In those days, I was, I was buying anything having to do with Superman. 
because Superman has always been my totem, sort of a, a, a surrogate father, male role model kind of importance to me. So I'd always collected Superman, although I'd never been uh, particularly thrilled by the stories in Superman. Uh, and that started to change in 1971 or so when Denny O'Neill took over the Superman book and wrote Kryptonite No More and the Sandman, Superman, and that whole thing. But the majority of Superman product going on at DC in those days was still pretty much on the silly side. And suddenly Jack burst onto the scene with Jimmy Olsen. And he was really, he really took the goofiest Superman title of all time and turned it on its end. And although I have an appreciation for Turtle Boy and Jimmy and Drag and all that stuff uh, and a certain amount of affection for it in later years, when I was 12, I just thought it was just so dumb. And suddenly, you know, Jimmy's kind of cool and he's, he's, you know, tearing up the Zoom way with the Newsboy Legion and, and Superman suddenly looked like a Marvel comic. You know, he looked dynamic and muscular and uh, exciting. And uh, it turned my world on end. And that's when I began becoming a, con becoming a connoisseur of the creators behind comics. And I learned who Jack was, and I learned who Neil was, and I learned who Gil Kane was, and I learned, you know, uh, I learned the names of the artists who had been influencing me all along. And yeah, that, that stuff hit me at exactly the right moment in my life to be profoundly formative. I'm just kind of curious. I know this is kind of jumping ahead a lot, but did you ever get a chance to meet and talk to Jack Kirby? And <laughs> I got to meet Jack a couple of times, very, very short periods. Both were at, both were at conventions. My favorite encounter with Jack actually was not me. It was my wife, Judy, who uh, I think it was in 1992. We were at San Diego Comic-Con and Jack was there as well. Judy was taking Kalel, who was like seven years old, back up to our hotel room. And they got into the uh, uh, elevator and there were Jack and Roz. And, you know, Judy, Judy is a, a, a hip, culturally literate nerd girl. And so she revered Jack as well. And so she introduced Kalel to Jack and Roz as uh, Kalel. This is the man who invented comics. <laughs> but just, it's a slight oversimplification, but it's but it's actually really accurate because I think it is fair to say that Jack Kirby invented the visual language of the modern superhero. Before Jack all comic books, all superhero comic books, were drawing from a book illustration tradition. They had uh, more in common with like Howard Pyle and N.C. Wyeth and, and the, the turn of the century, turn of the last century book illustrators uh, than they did with anything intrinsically comics. You know what I mean? They were influenced by movies and they were influenced by a commercial illustration. And Jack really... And that's not to say that there weren't great artists before Jack, but what Jack did was he realized that comics are not illustration. Comics are mm -hmm. storytelling, but you're using images instead of words. 
And so he invented a vocabulary of communication and not just his signature things like the extreme foreshortening and his, you know, incredibly kinesthetic way of drawing action. But, but also, I mean, some of Jack's best stuff is, are the quiet scenes, the talking head scenes, the human interaction scenes. And Jack, more than any other artist who came before, really, I think, seem to recognize that comics are their own thing. They're not movies movies compressed down to a few stills. They're not book illustrations where you capture representative moments in time. They are time itself. With comic book panels, uh, every comic book panel is signifies a, a moment in time, either a long moment or a brief nanosecond. And Jack understood that, and he understood that that what comic book artists do actually is manipulate the reader's perception of time. And so he invented a visual language that we all still use today. Even artists sure. who don't really know who Jack was, was use techniques that, that he invented. So I think you can really say that you can divide comics up between before Jack Kirby and after Jack Kirby because comics really became comics with him. And of superheroes, of course but not just superheroes, because as we all know, you know, he invented the romance comic, which mm. has no superhero action. And he worked on horror and he sure. worked on, well, every genre that there is. So in a way, Judy saying to our young son, this is Jack Kirby, the man who invented comics, is oddly uh, extremely accurate. And I, and I understand that Jack was instantly very shy and embarrassed. <laughs> But Roz was like, hell yeah. (laughs) I think it would just be uh, amazingly flattering to have, especially a kid, a child, uh, like a seven-year-old or something, to be like, oh, you, wow, kind of thing. And especially to have have, uh, that child's mom be like, okay, child of mine, this is a special moment and I want you to know it. And I want these people who probably already kind of know who they are because it's them. They're going to know it too. Cause it's like a mom said, this is my child. This is a, a special time for your life. I hope so. I really, really glad that Judy and Kal were able to give Jack and Roz that sort of moment of nachos, you know, because uh, they deserved as much of that as they could get. I think it's I think it's pretty special, and I, I I think just the fact too that you know it's, here's a, here's a lady and her son, her son's name is Kal El. You know, you've worked on <laughs> obviously they love comics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is not just fly by night. They, they named their son after a comic book character, a comic book character you you worked on and helped. You know, yeah, I was going to ask John is uh, Kal El uh, like a family name? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on, on Krypton, yes. Is, <laughs> cannot take him anywhere. Is that, Tell is you. that one of the East Coast states? I'm not sure. Okay. He's named after his uncle Kal-El. We were stuck on the Pacific Pacific Coast. We don't know anything about those crazy Eastern states. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of Eastern states, that's kind of where you grew up, correct? 
on the East Coast? Yes. Uh, long story short, I was born in Albany, New York. I spent my uh, young childhood in Bloomington, Indiana, so Midwestern, and uh, my adolescence in Richmond, Virginia. Most of my life, uh, we lived in Maine. My grandfather, Abraham Jacob Bogdanov, was a painter and a muralist. In 1918, he bought uh, one of uh, Rockwell Kent's, one of the studios Rockwell Kent built on Monhegan Island. I was going to mention that. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, see, I see some connections here. I see some connections. Okay. Connections. No matter where my family was living uh, when I was growing up, Monhegan was always my home. It was the home of my heart. Even if we only got to spend, I don't know, five, ten days there a year, I lived the year to get back to that place because it's very, very special and magical, which I tried to communicate some of that in a certain comic book you guys may be covering in a little while, yes. <laughs> uh, Monhegan is as much a part of my identity as any place uh, could be. So I, I sort of think of it as my home. Uh, and when Kellel was born, well, when Kellel was born, Judy and I were living on a boat in New York City, on uh, 79th Street Boat Basin on the west side. Judy was a teacher at PS 166 in Manhattan. And so we lived together, and she had a boat, and we lived together on the boat, and that's where Kellel was born. After he was born and Judy retired from teaching, we moved to Maine, and uh, Kellel's childhood was spent in rural Maine. If you knew Kalel, you knew that this was not a kid for the farm. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, he was hobnobbing with comics legends when, when he was uh, Jeff's daughter's age. So he um, grew up to uh, be a um, director, primarily voice and performance capture, uh, primarily on video games. And some of his credits include... Uh, Fallout, Fallout 4, Fallout 76. Oh, God, I don't know which ones are still under NDA. <laughs> I mean, he's worked on like 40 major franchises. That's impressive. Uh, and he's pretty, much, he's pretty much the guy on the Fallout franchise. Uh, but when he moved out to California to start that career, we used to, you know, FaceTime back and forth. Judy and I were still in Maine. At that point, we had uh, a, a large 13-room house on 11 acres uh, in Friendship, Maine, uh, and that had sort of been, you know, the clubhouse for Kalel's gang. Mm -hmm. We were sort of, I don't know, the, the cool parents or whatever, but Kalel had this incredible circle of amazing uh, friends, uh, most of them a few years older than him, and they all did theater together. They started out in kids' theater, and they ended up uh, developing their own theater company and writing their own plays, and Judy did compositions for their musicals, and Kellogg directed Shakespeare and won a Shakespearean contest and took his class to Edinburgh. So he was a big fish in a small pond, but we had a great gang of kids who would use our house as the gathering place, mainly because it was big enough for everybody. Yeah. But, you know, they all grew up and moved away because there are no jobs in Maine. They all moved away, went to college, got jobs elsewhere. Kellogg was the last of them to go because he was the youngest. But uh, Judy and I were sort of left in this vast, rambling pile of a house. Whenever Kellogg and I would FaceTime, he'd say, Pop, 
why why is it always twilight there? And and why can I see your breath? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I mean, it's thirteen rooms. We don't need thirteen rooms. We're we're only heating the office, you know. <laughs> and to us, it always looked like Kellel was poolside in a Hawaiian shirt, the Bond women bringing him Mai Tais. I mean, I don't know. That wasn't it, of course. How, how the- long did it take before you finally said, hey, we need an airline ticket in one way. We're not coming back. I mean, I mean, you start seeing this so many times. You said, hey, son, you well, know how you lived with us for a while? You got a spare room, right? I mean, I, we, that never entered our mind. We thought we were, we were of the opinion that, you know, yes, we had been very involved in Kalal's life, but he's a grown-up now, and we must carry on. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. So let, let me get out the big violins and you know start playing. Yeah, yeah let's set the mood. It's rending, raining. The, it's dark. It's two in the morning. You're you're staring out at the rain. Jim and Margaret have to deal with the fact that the kids are superheroes. I mean, it's <laughs> it's tough, but you gotta you gotta yep. take it. Kalal saw us. You know, saw me working like like uh in fingerless gloves and a down vest and he was like this is ridiculous your only illumination and heat source is a single candle a single taper flickering (laughs) taper right (laughs) as the wind blows through your reed walls (laughs) (laughs) so actually and actually kellel actually said one day he said guys the way you're living it's dickensian <laughs> you gotta come out of California. Your son, your son has called you, you know, a character out of Charles yeah. Dickens. And, he, and, and then you, just... you, you've been owned at that point in time. All right, your your, oh, son, yeah. your son named after a superhero has called you a character out of Charles Dickens. You've been called. Yeah, out, but then right? he could respond with, "Listen here, Pip. You may have had great expectations." <laughs> well, I, I think, I think he would be. He'd be more uh, akin to uh, Peter wearing Bob Cratchit's collar um, <laughs> going out to, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's very natural that Kellogg's a director because he's a very, he's a very big personality and very, very persuasive. So basically when he said, you guys have to move out here, we said, I guess we got to move out there. And, you know, I, I never saw myself as uh, as a West Coast guy. I used to love to watch Rockford, but it looked like the air in L.A. was always yellow. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. on that, I just thought, well, you know, I've been to L.A. once or twice and it was fun, kind of groovy, but probably not not for me. Kellogg said to move. So we moved and um, got used to it. <laughs> <laughs> what I love is the fact that you uh I haven't been really clocking how much time, but there's a good chunk of this conversation that you have brought up your son or you've talked about your son. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that uh, you love the guy, and I think that you're incredibly proud of him. Oh, I think that's fair to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, the greatest moment in my life, you know, it used to be that Kalil was John Bogdanov's son, mm-hmm. right? But now I am Kalil Bogdanov's uh... father. And that's... So great. You, there's, I mean, I know you guys, you, both your kids are, are young. But the day your kid grows beyond you is awesome. It's awesome. I feel like the actor and writer Carl Reiner just died this yes. week. You know, it's rare for me to feel so strongly about 
uh, a celebrity because I'm not really a celebrity oriented guy. We live in Hollywood and everyone around me is always seeing famous people and I don't even see, I don't know who they are. I don't even know who the famous people are, but I've always been a huge fan of, of Carl Reiner. And I think that uh, some of the, I think that I've learned some important things from Carl and, and mimicked his life in many ways. Uh, I make my living in a creative field in which I'm good. I uh, fell in love with the girl of my dreams and married her, and it worked out great. Uh, we have a wonderful son who grew up to be a good, kind, socially, socially responsible, artistically successful, creative person who, uh, who surpassed me uh, creatively. I mean, these are all, in many ways, it's like... Uh, Carl Reiner's life was a blueprint for my life. God willing, I shall only live as long as he did. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think very highly of Kellogg. <laughs> it is really nice to see, and it's kind of, it's funny that you mentioned that too with, you know, our own daughters. My wife and I have said for years to our daughter, you know, we don't care what you do with your life. We want you to be successful. I would be more, we would be more than happy if you were more successful than us. Um, that's what you should go for. But at the same time, do that if at least it makes you happy. Yeah. If nothing else, be happy. And I think that our daughter is one of those people that she would actually uh, probably just be happy doing her own thing to be happy, not really care about much else. And speaking of which... Uh, here's Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I'm a big fan of yours. You are an amazing actress, and you have... The perfect voice for Katie. Thanks. <laughs> we love listening to the podcast, but we love it especially when you come on and read stuff. Thank you. You're basically the star. Yeah, it's true. We sidekick for her. The best moment that Jeff and I ever had was when um, it kind of was always in my head that I'd have Carrie do sound effects. But it was a flash of genius when we were doing our, our last planning session. We're sitting at Jeff's table and we're talking about how we're going to structure the show and what we're going to do. And my wife was doing something the other day, so my daughter was with me. And she's sitting at the end of the table and she's reading the first issue of Power Pack. And she finishes. She goes, well, I finished it. And I looked at her and looked at my computer and I hit record. And I started asking her questions. And we got done. I hit stop. And Jeff and I looked at her and said, we're doing that every show as well. <laughs> and until that moment, we had not thought about it at all. But we were like, we are going to get her perspective every time. And it was a moment of genius yeah. for us. We just knew that we had a child that we could exploit. Uh, yes. And then we needed to figure out how. Memo to Rick in the future, please cut that before the FCC finds me. No, it was just it was very much along the lines because uh, when we started, she was seven. Uh, so, yes. But we were kind of talking. We're like, she is a peer of a power pack. She's in that age oh, range yeah. and still is. So it's really great. Cause it's like, we can have the voice of somebody who is of an appropriate age. And we can also get the perspective of somebody who is also of the age and kind of be like, if you're in this situation, what do you think? What do you feel about this? What about these circumstances? And so having Carrie with us has always been amazing. We've always been super, super happy. I, I have as, as you know, from a creative standpoint as one of the creators it's enormously valuable for me carrie to hear your point of view and to hear your opinions about stuff because uh i, I love these these characters but 
to to know what somebody in the actual age range age range of the characters thinks. I find your uh, your opinions and your reviews to be very very valuable to me. Thank you. And you know what's nice, Rick, is Carrie. When you are old enough to voice Julie, Jeff's daughter will be old enough to take over Ka- uh, Katie. Man, Potentially. I, I don't know if I don't know if we got enough content to go out that far. Yeah, there's got to be a lot more Power Pack stuff coming out, which is possible. There's got to be there's there's, 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 there's there's a mini series yeah, that's coming there's out. A little, there's uh, a quasi resonance resonance that's going yeah. on with it right now. Before we go too much further, I am going to go ahead and have Carrie ask her questions that she came up with. Sure. Um, what is your favorite color? My favorite color, red. Which one of the siblings is your favorite? Oh. You know, it's that's really hard to answer that. It's like saying, well, which one of your kids do you like better? All right, I'll tell you, I, I, I'll be really honest. I, I love them all. I think Katie is the most fun, but I think I might like Franklin best because he's not one of the siblings, but I modeled my design for Franklin off of our son, Kalel, who was about, you know, was who was the right age at the time to play Franklin. As a matter of fact, uh, hang on one second. So that's our son Kalel back in the day. Yeah, they look so they light. Do. That is amazing. Yeah. When you put that up a couple of months ago, I loved that. Anyway, so I guess I guess if I had to pick a favorite, it might be uh, Franklin because he's based on our son. But uh, I really, I, I really love I really love the kids, and it's amazing, Gary, because. You sound exactly the way I picture Katie. Yay! <laughs> I, I was interesting because you were holding that picture up and I was looking at exactly what you drew here. And yeah, definitely can tell the similarities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They look, they almost look like twins. <laughs> you want to ask your next one? Whose power do you like most? Hmm. Maybe the rainbow power? Maybe, although the Energizer power is, it's really useful for cleaning bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that scene is forever etched in my mind. <laughs> I, I, may, I may be the first, the first uh, comic book artist ever to draw a superhero peeing. Not sure about that, but. Not only that, but a superhero kid peeing so i mean that narrows down the focus even more (laughs) even yes i think that's my it's my claim to fame as a (laughs) as an artist i i think i know the answer to the next one but carrie hasn't been here for most of the conversation but i i think we could probably put down money on this one who is your favorite superhero oh (laughs) you mean non-power pack superhero could be i i'd have to say superman yeah he named his son Cal Al. Oh! <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> and I like, and this is a good one that you came up with your final question. What inspires you when you write and draw your own comic? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that before. What inspires me? A lot of things. I'm, re- you know, I'm inspired a lot by my family. I'm inspired a, a lot by my wife Judy. I'm, uh, I'm inspired by our son, Kalel, who lives like right across the yard from us. I'm inspired by Superman. I'm inspired by uh, cartoons and animation. Uh, I'm inspired by, for some reason, I get good ideas if I go swimming. 
you know, particularly if it's like in the ocean or a lake or something like that. I don't know. What, what kind of things inspire you? Cats. Tell, well, cats. Tell him about your little comic books. Um, so I had this friend. His name is Mason. And we do these comic books. We did like the cat shop. At one point, we even did our own version of Power Pack. Oh, that's awesome. Do you have anything else you want to ask? Any other things came to your mind? Not really. Do you want to say thank you? Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for coming, Carrie. Bye, Carrie. Bye. Love you, Carrie. Um, love you. <laughs> Speaking of creators and comic books and fans, and I like to segue, how did you start working on Power Pack? Oh, well, it actually, that's, that's sort of inseparable from how I broke into comics, which is a, an enormously long story, but I'll try and boil it down to something that we can... Run as long as you want. <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's all on me to figure out how to edit this. I'm, I'm okay, all for, I'm all for I, a 12-hour episode. I have given <laughs> up on trying to on trying to map this out in my brain. I'm just going to play it by ear once I start messing with the audio. Okay. Right. Well, uh, the year was 1985. Uh, <laughs> Judy and I were, were living on her boat on the west side of Manhattan in the Hudson River. We had a 12-foot commute to the city. <laughs> Judy was... Pregnant with our son Kalel, she wasn't teaching anymore, uh, and I was making a, a meager living as a itinerant caricature artist. You know, doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and trade shows and stuff like that. And I really needed to find a, a more substantive way to pay for a family, pay for having a family. So you know, in those days, it was pre-internet you know nowadays everybody knows what you do to make a comic you can just go online and find all the you know information and tutorials on all the tools and materials and everything else and and panels on how to break in and and uh, you know this wannabes have a lot of information just at their fingertips but in those days it was all a big mystery i was trying to put together i think it was judy's eighth month that I was trying to put together a portfolio, uh, but I didn't really know what to do. I was, I was drawing a, a, writing and drawing a Superman story, but without a real clear idea of what I was going to do with it. And I reached a moment of crisis one day around the boat and I'm thinking, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. How, how am I, what, how am I supposed to uh, break into comics? Well, Judy and I were already huge fans of the Simonsons. We had, she had had a sabbatical from teaching the year before she retired. And we had done sort of the hippie thing. We bought a van and gone on the road and, you know, sketched and painted around the country and went to museums and tracked down the paths of great illustrators and had a very groovy kind of uh, Bobby McGee kind of uh, hippie lifestyle for a while, for a year. And on during that sabbatical year, we discovered, we happened on Power Pack number one, because it came out in May of that year. Uh, I was already a fan of Walters. And so we had this wonderful night, uh, you know, comics were just sort of part of our wooing, uh, our, our mating dance, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and one one night we're, uh, we're we parked the car on the bridge. What's the bridge that, that connects 
Virginia to Maryland or something. It goes across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge tunnel system. Enormously okay. long bridge. There's a rest area in the middle where it just looks like you're, you know, uh, you can't see the shore in any direction. Just this long ribbon of, of highway. And you're at this little rest area in the middle. We put up the curtains in the back of the window van and we snuggled in. And when we got to the comic book reading portion of the evening, we're reading our stack of comics that we just bought in a store in Virginia. And it's Power Pack number one and, and all of Walter's stores up to that point. And we just fell in love with, with the si Simonsons as writers. Uh, I had been unaware of Louise. I knew her name from being editor of the X-Men. But uh, we just fell in love with that book. That book was, was transformative for us and became sort of em emblematic of our hippie adventure that year. And as a result, I ended up the next few days, we found ourselves up in Maine and we were hanging out at a beach in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And I, influenced by Power Pack, I drew this picture of kids playing on the beach in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Uh huh. I had fun drawing sort of that, that gawky kids proportion with the knobby knees and the big feet and all this sort of stuff and capturing their gestures. And that summer I sold that drawing at a, at a gallery on Manhattan Island, but it was very influenced by power pack. So when I was, so the next year when I, when we were, I was moping on the boat, how am I going to break into comic books? Judy, because we'd never missed an issue of Power Pack since, Judy said, well, why don't you call up Walter and Louise Simonson? I bet they'd help you. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, because readers of the book will know that Jim and Margaret Power are, are a thinly veiled ver Marvel Universe's version of Walter and Louise Simonson. Uh -huh. And so Judy knew that the Power Pack's apartment on West 71st Street just a few blocks from the boat basin where we lived, must be where the real life Walter and Louise live. So she said, why don't you just call Walter and Louise? I'm, sh I'm sure they'd be happy to help you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? These are comic book legends. They're really gonna, they're, 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 they're not gonna talk to me. They're not gonna let, they're not gonna, uh, what am I gonna do? Call them and say, how do I horn in on your business? I want, how do you, how do I uh, get in there and, and, and compete with you guys? I will, can't even call them anyway. They're legends. Their, their phone number's not even gonna be listed. Yeah. While I'm doing all this, Judy's flipping through the New York phone book. She finds their number, <laughs> dials, she hands it to me, and I'm suddenly on the phone with this baritone Norse god <laughs> on the other. And I'm like, oh, oh, Mr. Simonson, why? You don't know me, but. Uh, and uh, as I mean, I'm sure I was a stammering idiot on the phone. But Walter was just as sweet as a human being can be. And I know this is a big surprise to anyone who knows Walter. Very loquacious. And 45 minutes in, I realized, holy crap, I'm having a friendly conversation with the legendary Walter Simonson. And, like we're, and it's like we're old chums. He, he just did a really good job of sort of putting me at ease. And he regaled me with all kinds of wonderful stories, and we talked about all kinds of stuff. It was it was it was like talking to somebody I I'd, I'd known for years. But, but Walter gave me very basic, simple information that was not widely available in those days. And basically, he had 
three rules for drawing comics. When you're drawing something, when you're looking at the page, first of all, the bottom line is, is this going to make my story better? Not, is this a beautiful drawing? Because you can have a beautiful drawing that doesn't really serve the story as well as an ugly drawing. Okay. You know? And I see this I see this every day in my work. Sometimes I'll, I'll be tempted to draw a great, beautiful, big power shot when what is really required is a, is a carefully cropped flash of a moment in time, not a big, long moment establishing shot. That was his, that was his number one rule. And I've uh, lived by that every day. But in terms of practicality, uh, what he said was, here's what you do. Uh, you make two sets of samples of three pages each. You do three pages of a Marvel character and three pages of a DC character in sequence, both of them, because you, what you're trying to do is demonstrate that you can draw co continuity. <laughs> so pick a character you like from each co uh, a company and do three pages in sequence where an editor who's just glancing at it in passing can see exactly what's going on and see a little bit of a variety of, of things in those pages that you typically might have to draw in a comic book. So not just a superhero fight scene, but something with backgrounds, something with civilians, something with buildings, something with machinery, something with everyday people doing everyday talking head things. Have a little bit of everything, not just a fight scene, and use both sets of samples to show, to demonstrate different skills that you have. So for instance, if your DC samples are Batman fighting Killer Croc, don't have your Marvel samples be Daredevil fighting the lizard. You know, uh, uh, d demonstrate a variety. And then what you're gonna do is you're going to make tabloid size of them by 17 Xeroxes of your pencils. Don't ink them unless you're trying to, unless you're uh, auditioning to be an inker. Don't letter them unless you're, le unless you're auditioning to be a letterer. If you're auditioning to be a penciler, just submit pencils and don't submit your originals, submit copies because originals are precious and they smudge and they fade and originals are disposable and the, they're easy for the artist to get, for the editor to keep on file or to pass around to other editors and you can leave them there. So you're going to make two sets of copies at a copy shop because no one had home stuff in those mm -hmm. days. And you're going to give all six pages in a manila envelope for DC and uh, all six pages in a manila envelope for Marvel. And then you're going to call up an editor and make an appointment. And in those days, and I know it's way different now, but in those days, it was a part of every editor's job to break the hearts of wannabes. So one afternoon a week or so, they would set aside for looking at portfolios. Because as Joe Orlando or Saul Harrison or somebody said back in the day, comic books are really kids drawing pictures for young, slightly younger, younger kids. Um, okay. It's kind of a young man's game. And part of what kept comics vital was new blood. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, it served the company to have the editors always be on the lookout for their next artist. 
and every editor had complete autonomy to develop their own stable of artists. Nowadays, it's all different. There's like a, there's a, a new talent manager and his taste governs the taste of the entire industry uh, company. You can't get direct access to uh, an editor. In fact, they're legally forbidden to even look at any submissions at all. But back then it was different. You can call somebody up, make an appointment, go in and get a job like any sort of industry job interview. So that's what I did. I looked over my Superman story. I realized that I had a little bit of reworking three pages that would work really well, you know, of Clark being in the Daily Planet uh, city room and he hears about what's going on and he changes to Superman and flies out over the city and it had a little bit of I had civilian stuff in the Daily Planet and mm -hmm. and a really good Daily Planet city room because I had made my way into the Daily News one day and spent the day drawing and taking pictures and, uh, and a good cityscape because I lived in New York. So I had my Superman sa samples nailed down. For my Marvel samples, I wanted to do something completely different. In retrospect, I probably should have done the Hulk because uh -huh. uh, I've always been good at drawing muscles, you know, big muscles. And I like the Hulk thematically because he's kind of about uh, the struggle that sort of all men have dealing with abiding anger. So I probably should have done the Hulk, but I had this thing for the classic American illustrators and the Brandywine School and N.C. Wyeth and Howard Pyle and all that stuff. And so I wanted to do some Conan samples sort of in a book illustration style, just okay. to be completely different from my Superman stuff. And I, of course, never stopped to think who I'd be competing against by submitting Conan samples. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these are things, these are things worth considering. Yeah. Uh, in my hubris, I never thought of that. I just drew these great, these great Conan samples of a, you know, Conan and a Lovecraftian monster and an evil wizard. And it was very, it was good. It was fun stuff. I fell into Conan like that. It was so easy. It was so natural. I made. I went to the copy shop and I made tabloid-sized copies, just like Walter said. And I put both Superman and Conan in the Marvel envelope and Superman and Conan in the DC envelope. And I had a contact already at DC, somebody who taught at the School of Visual Arts. He gave me uh, an appointment in the morning. And I called up Larry Hama at, at Marvel because Walter said, you know, Pick an editor that you think you could work with. And I liked Larry. I liked okay. his I liked his editorial style. Uh, I just, I've, I've always admired him. And he picks up the phone and he sounds just like Perry White. You know, a, a tough guy, a tough guy with a heart of gold and in a hurry. Just like you want an editor to sound. He was fantastic. And he gave me an appointment for that afternoon. So on that fateful day in April 1985, I put on my Clark Kent suit, uh, <laughs> blue suit, white, uh, white shirt, red tie, fedora hat, yes. <laughs> and I marched myself down to bright and early to Rockefeller Plaza. And I sat in the waiting room uh, at D.C. next to the little fiberglass statue of Clark Kent reading the Daily Planet. And I sat right next to him and read the Daily News and, uh, and uh, waited, for, waited to be called in. And hours went by. And the receptionist periodically would go and remind, you know, the editor that I was there. And hours went by. And something must have been going on behind the closed door that made 
keeping his appointment with me impossible. So finally, the clock is ticking down and I'm worried because I'm worried that I'm not going to have enough time to get across town to Marvel's offices. Mm-hmm. So I leave my, my I leave a package of, of uh, Xeroxes with the receptionist and she very kindly says, yes, she'll see to it that the editor gets them. And uh, I go to catch my appointment with Larry Hama. And I get down to uh, Marvel's, in those days we were on Park Avenue, and uh, I get ushered in, and it's entirely different from D.C. D.C. was in Rockefeller Plaza. It was, it was very corporate. It was like visiting an advertising agency. It felt like Mad Men in there. Uh-huh. You know? It was very sort of sophisticated, very corporate, very grown-up, very, oh, we're not just comics, very like that. Marvel was exactly like Stan always said it would be. It was exactly what you wanted. It was still the tail end of the Marvel age of comics, you know? I'm envisioning the the old pictures that they had of the the drawing of the bullpen with it just looked like absolute chaos. Exactly. Exactly. It looked like it looked like the aftermath of a frat party. But you know, Jack Abel was was in the bullpen doing corrections and cracking a stream of jokes a mile a minute. And uh, Mary Severin was in the office that day, and and uh, Virginia Romita, and and oh. it was and and you know there was an a, there's an actual bullpen. There's artwork all over and stuff stuck up everywhere. And the editor's offices are arranged in a ring around the bullpen and everybody's door is open and everybody's joking and laughing and, 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 and showing each other their, the cool stuff that they just got in from so-and-so. And, and it, there, was the, there was an energy there that it was so not disappointing. It really was what Stan <laughs> promised. It was the Marvel Age of Comics still. It was a fun, rollicking place. It was the house of ideas. It was all true, just as the bullpen bulletins page has always said, just as he'd always promised in, in Stan's soapbox. It was Marvel Comics, and it felt like it. And as I walked through the bullpen in my incredibly corporate-looking Clark Kent suit, because everybody else is dressed like hippies, uh, uh, I'm I'm struggling really hard not to completely geek out because I'm just in love. This is exactly what it's supposed to be. Uh, they bring me back to Larry's office. Larry, I think Larry actually came out to bring me in himself, and he had an office in the corner of the bullpen, kind of a, a, a darker office. And uh, and he was a he's a no nonsense guy. But he's really sharp and a fast study. And he flips through my pages. He makes a couple of smart, very smart comments. Uh, and he puts them down. And he says, um, oh, good news and bad news, kid. Well, the bad news is we won't be firing John Buscema for you. John was in the background just like oh please no 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 yes (laughs) keeping my job it was only at that moment that I realized oh that's right John Buscema draws Conan what was I thinking but then he said the good news is you're not leaving here without a job oh nice you know the, the chorus of angels sang Right, uh, and, and the music crescendo swelled, and it was like, "This is this is this is the way 
as a fan, you dream of getting into comics. I thought that I would spend, oh, several years ghosting somebody on Potato Salad Man yeah. and then maybe graduate <laughs> graduate to doing eight pages in a backup somewhere in some romance comic or something like that. Um, and so you hit the, until you hit the big up. time where you, you're doing the back page ad. And, and <laughs> yeah, I, but Dario Hamas is standing there saying, you're not leaving here without a job. And he grabs me by the ear and he drags me down to Carl Potts' office. <laughs> oh. And and he says, don't worry, Carl's really good with new guys. And he throws me into Carl's office and says, Carl, give this kid work. And he goes back <laughs> Carl doesn't even notice. Carl is in his office having a conversation with a radiant, sunny, beautiful woman, blonde woman, and they're discussing who to get to replace June Brigman on Power Pack. Oh. And meanwhile, he's sort of, without even looking at me, he's like uh, flipping through my samples, but not really paying attention. He's, he's talking to Wheezy, and I, I put it together. <laughs> <laughs> this is Louise Simonson. This is Louise Simonson right here. And this is Carl Potts, who actually edits Power Pack, and and this is Louise Simonson, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't speak. I was just captivated. I was lapping up the insider knowledge. June Brinkman's leaving Power Pack. Oh no! I love Power Pack. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they get somebody good. <laughs> did Power they? Pack. Did they? Yeah, they did. They got Brent Anderson. Oh, uh, nice. Woof. They're complaining to each other because. Nobody can draw kids, they, they thought. They said, you know, everybody, everybody draws superheroes, draws kids that look like muscular midgets. And, yeah. and you know, who are they going to find who can draw kids as, as, well as, as well as June? And it was at that moment when sort of uh, the angels took a hand. Because a year before, I had done that draw after reading the first issue of Power Pack. I had done that drawing of kids playing at the beach at Cape Elizabeth, Maine, and I'd sold that drawing at a gallery. But somehow, and I don't know how to this day, a preliminary sketch for that drawing, some of the rough sketches I did on the tailgate of our van that day, found their way a year later into my Marvel samples. Not my DC samples, my Marvel samples. I don't know how, but it floated down like a leaf out of a tree. <laughs> out from between the pages that, that, that Carl was sort of looking at and settled on his desk uh, before him. And he didn't notice it first because he's had bigger fish to fry than me. Mm -hmm. Wheezy noticed it. And she said in that sunny, that sunny angelic Wheezy voice, Carl, look, he can draw kids. <laughs> Carl looked and he said, yeah, hey, this is pretty good. And, uh, and so they said, well, would you like to draw Power Pack? So Carl, right off the bat, first day going into Marvel, offered me the penciling on Power Pack to actually work with my hero, Louise Simonson. That's amazing. First, that's day one. It's amazing. That's one. And it was going to be a couple of months until, you know, June left. So he gave me a couple of uh, books to do first. He gave me an issue of... Solomon Kane and gave me an issue of Alpha Flight to cut my teeth on. And I'm really, I'm really glad he did because, God, I owe, I owe Carl Potts so much. 
Karl Potts is a born teacher. He, Larry Hama was exactly right that this is an editor to break in on because he's a very smart guy. Karl Potts is a very smart guy. He's very professorial. He knows an awful lot of stuff. He immediately could tell what was strong in my drawing, could immediately tell where my weaknesses were. He loaded me up with reference uh, to teach me about establishing shots and use of negative space and stuff like that. He gave me a stack this tall of communist China comics, which he thought were from were uh, a really good example of design thinking for establishing shots. And I didn't get it at first, but you know, like with Walter, I really paid attention to everything Carl tried to teach me. And I took home this stack and I used it for reference. And of course my mind opened up in that same way my mind opened up with Walter. So there, there, are, there are rare times in your life where the universe splits open and invites you in and says, here's your next step. Here's this, absorb this knowledge, take this step. And both Walter and Carl Potts gave me that experience. So I left uh, his office that day with two assignments, two months work, which would get me through Judy's delivery. You know, Wheezy chimed in because the page rate in those days was $70 per page. Mm-hmm. Wheezy got me uh, a day, a day, a five dollar raise on day one by saying, "Carl, his wife's about to have a baby. Give him at least seventy-five. Oh. So, so I, I went out the, out of the door with a with a five dollar raise without having drawn a line, uh, and two assignments, and in an, and an invitation from Louise Simonson to come over for dinner. You know. How far, how many blocks, how many New York City blocks did you actually walk? Did you find that you were actually finally off that cloud and actually touching concrete again? Not sure I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it'll happen eventually. <laughs> Not sure I am yet. See, I was thinking the version of the story was going to go along. Here's how I got in on Power Pack. I couldn't call them, so I wrote a fan mail. And Carl Potts answered it, and what the message was that I had in there is, Hi, I'm John. I'm a real big fan of Power Pack. I've been reading since issue one. How can I become an artist and then writer and then take over the whole thing? And then Carl Potts responds. <laughs> yeah. He goes, that kid's got a job. That kid's got a job. I, I, it, 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 it is amazing to me. It is amazing to me that you had such an amazing adventure. And yet, from our interactions that I've, that I've had personally with Walt Simonson, even though I have yet to talk to him and Wheezy, it, it seems to me like this is absolutely true that I can completely see oh, this yeah. happening. Um, oh yeah. But look, anybody who knows them and you know, there are a lot of us who are lucky enough to have fallen to uh, fallen into the sphere of Walter and Wheezy and been taken under their wing. They've uh, mentored and nurtured so many people in this business. I mean, that was Wheezy's editing style on in at Warren and uh, on the X books. She was she she calls it just playing. She likes to play with people. She likes to have, she likes people to have fun and to play with her. And she just enjoys playing with creative people. But what that really means, and what her really and what her genius is as a collaborator and a writer is that she is so incredibly sharp at understanding people's strengths and at fostering those strengths so that when she writes, Chris Claremont does this too, but, but to somewhat lesser extent, 
they sort of write for who they're working with. And they feed you what is going to inspire you and cause you to grow. It's easy. I've worked so much with Wheezy that, that it's easy to get spoiled by that. But really, not everybody writes that way. Not everybody has that phenomenal perception into story and character and collaboration and and another artist. She's kind of, I mean, she is a genius that way. Uh, she's a genius writer in that she understands characterization and understands stakes and understands drama. And she really taught me everything I know about writing. But also as a collaborator, she, and, and as an editor, obviously, but she's a genius because uh, she's so perceptive and her judgment is so sharp and refined that, God, it's, it's I mean... I would not exist in comics if not for what I learned from Wheezy over the years. And also for the fact that both she and Walter adopted Judy and me and Kal-El uh, and have been, you know, uh, among our closest friends, family, really, uh, ever since that day. Walter and Louise have been like family to us for 35 years, almost 36 years. It, it still happens that whenever we visit them, that I have that same fan feeling that you had now. Of, I can't believe that I'm held to helping Louise Simonson make dinner, or I can't believe that I'm hanging out in the studio with Walter Simonson. I can't <laughs> believe it, and and it's it's uh, it's mind-boggling because in so many ways, Judy and I have modeled our lives after Walter and Louise. You know, Walter and Louise op open their house to have opened their house to so many people. Have they have so many proteges and have mentored so many people. They're wonderful hosts. They're like they're like Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, really. <laughs> they are just, you know, they're wonderful in, in in so many ways and Judy and I have tried to have a home that's like theirs and we've tried to nurture people the way they nurture people because they have spread a lot of good in the world. And I know sometimes I sound like I'm, you know, part of the cult of Walter and Louise Simonson, and, and probably I am. <laughs> but the, the fact that I still get that sort of fanboy thing, you know, walking through their house and seeing this epic artwork on the walls, that holy crap, we're friends with Walter and Louise Simonson. <laughs> you know, as close as they are and as familiar as they are and as and as relaxed, uh, you know, as a, as a comfortable pair of shoes our friendship is, still get these, these, these fanboy moments where I feel like I'm, like I've crossed the Rainbow Bridge and I'm walking around in Asgard and, and hoisting a flagon with, with uh, the Norse gods. We, we have that same exact feeling every time we do one of these interviews. We, we really think to ourselves, you know, we're two guys who do a silly little show about a comic book from the 80s, and we drink beer, and we have fun together. What are we doing talking to these you know, gods of creation? And, and, and how do we luck out that, that this is working, that we have people that want to listen to us and want to talk to us? Yeah. And we're, we're not quite sure how that happens. And, and it, it's fascinating to me that to hear you 
who we hold you in such high esteem, you still have that same feeling about the people you look up to as well. Oh, yeah. I, and and honestly, the whole thing would embarrass Walter and especially Wheezy because, you know, they're, I don't think they fully appreciate what legendary figures they are. I don't think they fully appreciate their impact in the world. I mean, Walter may have some sense of his own importance. Wheezy, I think, really doesn't. Though There's a weird thing about if she has any faults at all. The fault of Wheezy is that she never seeks acclaim. She's, she's not self-aggrandizing enough, you know? And I think this has caused her to... She's so she has such humility that I think it's caused her sometimes to let other people steal her thunder, thunder that should be hers. Mm-hmm. She really, she's uh, she's one of the giants of the history of comics. Yes, in more ways than can be said. There'd be no death of Superman without Wheezy. Right. That's a, that's another podcast. But you know her work and her genius and her kindness it's it's unbelievable you know it's superhuman and uh but boy she does not toot her own horn and she sort of uh, actively discourages anything that sort of shines a spotlight on her and yet you know if you do get an interview with her as you know she's wheezy she's just like yeah she's fantastic she's just a normal person because she doesn't feel like a goddess you know She's just so, so speaking with Walter and Wheezy is just like speaking with normal people. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a little different from like, I'm, I'm pretty friendly these days with, with Neil because his, his store is right around the corner and he's come by a few times. And Neil is one of my heroes too. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was a fan of Neil's before I even knew who Walter was. Talking about Neil is another show because <laughs> uh, I mean, Neil, Neil is, phenomenally important second maybe only to jack phenomenally important figure in comics and not just because of the way he draws not just because of his storytelling not just because of the amount of work he's done or the fact that in his 80s he's still he's still pounding it out it's it's stuff he's done behind the scenes as well that has made it possible for guys like me to survive but the thing about neil is neil fully appreciates who and what he is Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, Neil, Shat- Neil is the Shatner of comics. He's the William Shatner of comics in that th- this is a man who fully appreciates his own uh, standing in, in history, uh, which I think, is a, I think is a good thing because I think, honestly, and this is advice for people trying to break into comics or any creative field, I believe that you need a little bit of Shatner inside you. You need a little bit of, I think I can. You know, in order to withstand the pummeling that your ego gets in life, you got to have a Shatner tough ego. And you have to you you also have to uh, learn how not to read the comments sometimes. Well, you need need to know how to not take comments, both good comments and bad comments, too seriously. Yes. Right. And here's the thing. Wheezy has a thoroughly secure ego, but she never capitalizes on it. She never self-aggrandizes in any way. She's humble almost to a fault. And she, uh, the, the contrast of these two legends, you know, 
Neil Adams on one end of the spectrum, Louis Simonson on the other end of the spectrum, is fascinating to me. Is fascinating to me, and I think I, I think I'm somewhere in the middle in that in that I I will toot my own horn as a matter of business. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I will self-aggrandize as a matter of 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 business to promote a project project to promote myself to defend. Uh, a brand, a title, a character, to stand up for a cause. I will, I will exploit my so-called celebrity uh, in the way that Neil does. But I also envy and and like to emulate Wheezy's absolute security about who she is. She's not interested in the game of self-promotion at all. It holds no interest for her. She just likes having fun. Yeah. And, and and writing stories is fun. And working with other creative people is fun. And that's and that's why she's and that's why she's in it. And although although sometimes I feel like uh, you know she she should get more attention uh, for herself and should get more recognition than she does, her perfect centeredness is also a big part of what I emulate. So I try and I sort of take him from both ends of the spectrum, I think. Let me turn the conversation back over to some of Power Pack. Let me, we, we've been going on quite a while and I've taken up a lot of your time and I would, I want to continue taking up your time and I want to continue having beers with you. But let me hit you with some things because I'm very curious about some things, if you don't mind. Sure. Back in one of the early issues, and I don't have the number right in front of me right now, we had... Alex discovered that there was a crack problem in New York. Yeah. And you drew the issue. And there was a rumor that in order for you to get a perspective on what crack looked like, you decided that it would be very helpful if you had firsthand knowledge and firsthand visuals of what a crack house looked like. Could you explain yourself, sir? <laughs> well, children, <laughs> back in the olden days, they didn't have the Google... You couldn't just you couldn't just the Google up any kind of reference you wanted. And one of my hero Walter Simonson's bits of advice was use reference. Don't fake it. And in those days everybody lived in New York. We lived in New York City. New York City, where anytime you walked up the street, it was like Spider-Man hopping over water towers everywhere you looked it was it was gotham city or metropolis i mean new york city yeah. uh and comics the comic community was like a village because everybody had to you know there wasn't fedex and there wasn't email and all that sort of stuff so people had to live close enough to the office to bring in their stuff so it was a great advantage to live in new york and uh we lived at the boat basin on 79th street uh, and in those days, um, underneath Riverside Park was the Pen Yards. They were uh, largely abandoned, but there were some. There's a community of lovely homeless people who lived there. Who, boy, you say the name Marvel Comics, and people open their doors for you. And this lovely bunch of people let me hang out with them and draw them and, and develop my Morlocks from them. Oh, okay. Uh, and it allowed me to to put them in Marvel Comics. Not everybody. Some people don't want to be photographed down there. Sure. But uh, as long as you're respectful. So so I got to do that. As I said before, 
you know, I, I, in the days before 9-11, I was able to bull my way into the city room at the Daily News, uh, and I still use that roll of film and those sketches I made as my basis for the Daily Planet to this day, although I update the computers from time to time. <laughs> uh, you know, if I needed a particular bit of, of uh, reference, I had to go out and get it. Like there's a, a, a scene in Power Pack where Johnny Rival, what a name, Johnny Rival is holding a gun in the flash panel uh, uh -huh. on right at the reader. I didn't know how to draw a gun like that. I didn't have access. I had some toy guns, but but I really needed the real thing. So I got a, a, a policeman to draw down on me while I drew him. Uh, <laughs> uh, and his... His partner, his partner came around the corner uh, while while the little guy was holding the gun on this big long drawing drawing in front of him, and he immediately went for his piece, thinking that something heavier was going down. You know, in those days, um, in those days, I could roam the city. I could get into places you could never get into now. I could I could go into almost any building and find my way up to the roof and take pictures and make drawings so that I could draw a city that felt and looked absolutely like you could be there. Uh, and I needed to draw a crack house. So uh, I took my sketch pad and my camera and I wandered around um, and just asked strangers if they knew where there was a crack house. <laughs> And I looked for the shadiest looking people I could find. Again, when I said, you know, it's from Marvel Comics. Immediately, everybody was pointing me to this notorious crack house over there <laughs> in the projects behind, uh, behind Columbus uh, Circle there. So I went there and uh, there were dudes out in front with automatic weapons. Um, so, I, <laughs> so I went around the back. And uh, I climbed up the fire escape uh, and I took pictures through the, the windows were mostly boarded, but I could take pictures sort of through the cracks between the boards. I spent, you know, an hour or so making sketches and, and taking photographs in the windows and of the building from a distance and pretty much all the angles that I thought I would need. And I, I, I didn't even end up a chalk outline. I don't know how that happened, but... We are very impressed with that, and and I think I heard the story about uh, the uh, the gun as well about you too. So you're a very brave man. Congratulations, sir. No, 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 no. I'm not brave. I'm foolish. <laughs> I'm I'm silly. I'm what actually what I am is overzealous. Okay, overzealous. You were an artist following his muse. I'm not a halfway measures kind of guy. I'm sort of all in, dialed in. <laughs> Sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> Speaking of all in on a storyline, let's talk about your Inferno run. Because, as you know, I think we put that at the top of our list for, my goodness, this is amazing. I was very touched by that. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm sorry I scared Carrie, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm glad I scared Carrie because that means it worked. Oh, it, it worked really well. I mean, just the that cover alone of, you know, like Boogeyman you know, face is kind of like, Hey, I just need to put that face down. I'll just look at that, uh, <laughs> Dr. Strange ad on the back a lot. And then, then I'll forget. I'll be like, Oh, why, why do I have that upside? Oh yeah. I'll just put that over there. But, uh, so how did, how did you come up with it? Oh, also, uh, you like words. 
I know that's not a question. That's just a statement because no, it's, it's, yeah. in that Inferno line, it is like five issues worth of dialogue and talking and words and everything going on. That's actually one of my one of my weaknesses. Writing comics is very epigrammatic. It's like writing haiku. You have to be, you have to let the artwork do do most of the heavy lifting and keep your words to a minimum. Mm-hmm. A 22 page comic should maybe have at the most 200 words in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a sign of my immaturity as a writer in those days <laughs> is that I think I probably had a thousand words or more per issue. So yeah. you, you and you and Chris Claremont. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say just in uh, that Inferno one, it was, the the words started getting so heavy that it's they it, like the font had to shrink just to fit it in. Where it's like there's art there, I can tell, but there, Jim and Maggie have you know word bubbles kind of going like here, and they're kind of working their way around them to talk. <laughs> well, that was that was partly intentional, actually. What the scene you're talking about, mm-hmm. because I I wanted the city to feel hot and sticky and cloistered, and you the apartment to feel too crowded yeah. and. Uh, and uh, because I'm a visual guy, part of the idea for that was, well, this is a place where I can use my wordiness to literally make the artwork feel crowded here. Yeah. I, everything about that was so amazing. I love just uh, like the decrepitness that you put in, just the rot, like the, you know, the urban rot that was going on where you're like, we've seen, you know, the power, the powers apartment before it. it yeah, it looks like this, but it doesn't have the water stains and the water drip and the cracks in the wall and that poster's not torn and off on its side and those books aren't disheveled. It was everything about that issue was just oppressive and just you you just want a, cl- a cleansing shower afterwards with it. So you did an amazing job. Well, I I'd spent some summers in New York City <laughs> in the in the mid eighties, <laughs> and then you just turned them up to eleven, if as it were. <laughs> or down to nine. I was just trying to report it like it really was, man. There were days. There were days in the dog days uh, of summer back in back when New York was still a place where uh, a school teacher and an artist could afford to live. Summertime. I mean, there's a reason people used to go to Maine in the summertime and leave the city because it would get just like that. That uh, I mean, people talk about the hot, sticky grossness of of the way I depicted New York and Inferno, but really it's not that huge an exaggeration, honestly. We talked about it a little bit before, but elsewhere, how did that story even come about? Oh, as a whimsical lark. I mean, (laughs) really here's what it was, was with Inferno, I was a young writer and I was, being coached by Wheezy. Literally, Wheezy is my writing teacher. Mm-hmm. I learned how to write fiction from Louise Simonson. Could not have a better teacher. And what she was impressing upon me was the necessity to have stakes, right? Because mm-hmm. the tendency in my writing was to protect the kids and just lean into the fun and keep it light. And I don't want to, I don't want anyone to be hurt. But, you know, Wheezy, she's big into killing characters and putting people in real peril. She impressed upon me that look at the great children's literature you read as a kid. There's real stakes. People die. People get orphaned. There's actual peril. Mm -hmm. And you've got to not shy away from that. 
so I, again, went all in. I took Wheezy's advice to heart and I said, okay, well, we're, I'm going to blow their secret identities mm -hmm. and I'm going to have it. I'm going to have it completely drive mom and dad who are already stressed from Inferno right over the edge. And I'm going to show that the world that kids live in, particularly if you're an urban kid, uh, is hard and dangerous and that things aren't always fun. You know? So I took Wheezy's heart, uh, advice to heart and I sometimes think maybe I went too far, but by the time I was done with those issues, I was kind of a wreck, mm -hmm. um, just emotionally. It's like when I did the Holocaust issues on Superman. After afterwards, after being immersed immersed in that stuff for for uh, two and a half months, I was emotionally and psychologically kind of screwed up. For uh, for therapy, I decided to do a fun story, a pure fantasy story that was much more lighthearted. I kind of kept it loose. I started with a picture of, of, of Katie eating peanut butter, uh, inspired, <laughs> by, inspired by my son, who's the opposite, who was the opposite of that, because Kal-El can't even stand out a little peanut butter on the outer edge of the jar. He's, he's so ridiculous, even as a little child, even as a four-year-old or a five-year-old, he's so fastidious. And I, as a dad, I was kind of like, where are those kid messes? I'm, I, 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 I've, I'm raising Felix Unger here. What, what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the classic kid stuff? So I started with the drawing of, of Katie covered with peanut butter. I latched onto this idea of, oh, your costumes go elsewhere, right? And I said, what if elsewhere isn't just a dimensional nothingness? Uh, what if it's an actual place and there's a laundry there? <laughs> you know, and people that actually, you know, their job is to launder and mend superhero costumes from around the multiverse. Maybe that's, maybe that's a business. So, and uh, it ended up being sort of an opportunity to explore the ridiculous, silly 19th century children's fiction and early turn of the last uh, century comics, uh, comic strips, the, you know, Edwardian age, and to just play in that world a little bit. And so that's what it was. I threw in George McManus, I threw in Windsor McKay, I threw in uh, uh, Wizard of Oz, I threw in The Goops, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of Secret Garden, a little bit of uh, a number of more obscure fantasy books that I enjoyed mm -hmm. as a kid. And just, um, I sort of tried to draw the way Mobius and, and uh, uh, Kirby drew. You know, they used to say that Kirby could like start with an eye somewhere in the corner of a page and everything would grow out from there. And I know that Mobius could draw that way too and write that way. He didn't need a plot. He could just start drawing a story and have it come out right. And I, there's some other guys that can do that too. Eric Larson can do that now. Yeah. Uh, and as an experiment, I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with Katie eating peanut butter and hope I get a story that has a resolution in 22 pages. Well, you, you came up with something that was entertaining and enjoyable and great fun. So thank you very much for that. And, and really on acid. <laughs> yeah, it was memorable. Quite a bit. We, we aren't even going to ask that. We are a kid-friendly <laughs> show. so um, We'll just say it was very memorable. Speaking of memorable, though, 
we haven't gotten to this one yet, but this is uh, Power Pack number 51, and it's got a character called Numinous on the cover. Yes. And Numinous, I've got one question about Numinous. Sure. Whoopi Goldberg? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I can. I, I, all right, no problem. Look, um, Marvel Universe is brimming with cosmic uh, entities who are all really big. Yeah. Right? This is the Watcher and Galactus and the Celestials and all that stuff. And I wanted to do one for fun. You know, <laughs> I wanted to contribute to the Marvel Universe pantheon in some small way. As, and, as well you should. And so many of those. Marvel deities are dudes. I wanted there to be a goddess, and I guess a turn it well. There's at least one, but I anyway. I wanted to even the gender imbalance of the Marvel Marvel pantheon. Don't blame me um, at all. You know, numinous is a word that means awe and wonder. If you just spell it Marvel Comicsy, it makes a great name. Goes with Galactus. Numinous. Yeah. Good. And um, Judy and I love Whoopi Goldberg. And one of the most formative comics I ever read as a kid was Goody Rickles, Jack Kirby's uh, Jimmy Olsen. You know, when when uh, Don Rickles showed up. Do you remember that? I don't think I've seen that one. Nope, afraid not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, all right. This you got to fill this gap in in your in your life. I will. I will. Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby loved Don Rickles. They had the same sense of humor. Jack and Jack really loved Don Rickles. And just as a as a as a love letter to Don Rickles, he made him a character in Jimmy Olsen. Okay. All right. Um, and I know for a fact that Whoopi is aware of this comic, so and never objected. And that's and that was my other question: is that have you ever been contacted by her? And <laughs> no, actually, no. Look, we're just big Whoopi fans. Uh-huh. Uh, um, my wife was going through a major sort of new age woo-woo phase at that time. It just seemed like Whoopi would be a great Marvel cosmic deity. It just seemed like Whoopi would be a great Marvel cosmic deity. She'd be, she'd be, uh, uh, she'd fix the gender balance. She'd provide diversity, uh, and and she'd just be good in that role. Yep. And. This was just before she got cast as Guinan in Star Trek. So I was obviously, it was in the ether. I was thinking along the same lines as Michael Piller and the guys that wrote Star Trek. You were, you were ahead of the curve on that one, sir. You, you, oh, I was. You, you, I was definitely ahead of the curve. You, you actually should have gone to the Star Trek office and said, where's my money? Where's my money? Because, you know, I called this show. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's comics. Nobody cared. <laughs> comics have always been, at least in those days, comics were an idea farm. Yeah. You know, they were an R&D department that paid for itself, basically. They let you do what you wanted. Marvel Comics was a fun place where they just let you play. And that's how you get great ideas. Yes. So I wanted to do, I wanted to cast Whoopi Goldberg as a, as a, a cosmic deity. And it was fun. And, uh, you know, we colored her magenta just like, uh, and, you know, we, Judy and I went to see uh, Whoopi Goldberg on Broadway. Uh-huh. And we hung out at the stage door and we handed her manager a copy of the comic book to, to give to Whoopi. And he was 
uh, and uh, stage manager, I guess, mm -hmm. and he was tickled and he gave it to Whoopi. And uh, so I, and Whoopi never complained, never said a word to Marvel, never said a word to me. I think she liked it. She sent out an autographed playbook. Oh, that's right. She's, she sent back an autographed playbook, which we have framed. So she was tickled to be a Marvel Comics cosmic deity. Who the hell wouldn't? Be? Oh, yeah. Oh. What has she got to complain about? Oh, no, nobody. I, nobody, yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody would complain about that. I, I, but we had you on. We had to ask you because it is such a... Even even as a young kid, I remember getting that issue and going, Whoopi Goldberg? <laughs> it, it is funny because did, Rick did, a couple of times has been like, I'm pretty sure that the Whoopi Goldberg is in here. And I gotta, if we ever talk to John Bogdanoff, I gotta ask him. I've gotta ask him. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I really would love Newness to show up again because honestly, she's good casting yeah. for a Marvel mm -hmm. Cosmic Deity. And it's a good idea for a Marvel Cosmic Deity. And, you know, Whoopi's cool. She's not going to mind. She's not going <laughs> to ask for money for that. She doesn't need the three cents that that would glean her. You know. Let's move into some. Li I got other things I want to ask you about too, but we'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't uh, ask you some of our listeners' questions. This one comes from Jeremy Daw, and he was wondering: Were there any other stories that you felt like you would like to tell the day that you didn't get a chance to uh, tell when you were working on the book originally? Oh my God, yes. Should I? <laughs> and that's there you, there you go that's your answer yes that, that's, jeremy, that, he that's wants a more perfect answer <laughs> jeremy, jeremy will elucidate to expand on that slightly i would really like to have not fixed jim and margaret by magic mm. i would have liked it if i had been allowed and if the time had had allowed it to have them heal naturally and gradually and to adjust because in real life, parents sometimes have to adjust to extreme revelations about their kids. And for, well, for instance, I've known a lot of queer kids who could not come out to their parents, right? And I've known queer kids who, when they did come out to their parents, got kicked to the curb, if you can imagine. I feel that by fixing, by, rest by restoring the status quo by magic, that yes, we got to do a few more innocent power pack stories, but we really sold Jim and Margaret short. I really think that after their freak out, they would gradually come to grips. And I think it was really time to challenge this assumption that you have to keep your identity secret from the people closest to you. You know, maybe Aunt May can deal with Peter being Spider-Man, maybe. You know, and Jim and Margaret are both smart people, mm -hmm. loving people, and they would eventually adjust. And to show that process of adjustment and to show that it's not easy, but it is possible, I think would have been very satisfying creatively and also very appropriate in the from the standpoint of of metaphor, because there are a lot of kids out there who do have to keep their identities secret from their parents. And I think to, I would have liked to have done a story that shows how you can come out to your parents and it'll be okay. Don't, don't sell your parents short. I had, I felt like that was rushed to me. We had discussed it uh, during the, the yeah. covering of that issue where it seemed like it would have been neat if that had kind of gone on longer. So was it that yeah. just a, that wasn't a, you as an, uh, a writer's choice. That was a like managerial decision to just wrap that up and move on to the next thing. 
it was it was a managerial uh, decision. I think that Carl was under some pressure to put the toys back on the shelf. Uh, I think it may be he had some fill-in stories in the uh, hopper already that were based on the old status oh, okay. quo. We had to restore the old status quo or these stories would never see the light of day. Right. And I think also that, you know, Marvel didn't want to change the premise that strongly, mm -hmm. that much, at least not at that point. And I did not kick up a fuss. I regret not kicking up more of a fuss because... But the, I was, you know, again, after the whole Inferno thing, I was kind of emotionally wiped out. And so when they said, well, we're just going to do this story that sort of fixes everything, I was like, okay, I'll <laughs> do some more happy, happy, fun power pack. Yeah, and I think I sensed that my run on the book was was drawing to a close. So I thought, well, okay, I'll do a few more fun stories and that'll be that. But I've always kind of regretted it. I would. I, I feel bad that we just sort of. The thing I hate most in all the Superman movies is when is when Superman conveniently wipes Lois's memory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've always I've always hated that. And when we did it to Jim and Margaret, I just felt like we crossed the line, and I just kind of broke my heart a little bit. Okay, you just kind of touched on it though, where you, you were saying that you felt like your run on Power Pack was going to come to an end. So. Was that uh, not your decision to pass the torch on to the next person? Or were you like going, well, I'm, my, my time here is done. I've put in my, uh, I've put in my miles. No, I, I think it was based on sales. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Wheezy had moved on to X Factor, uh, wasn't coming back to do Power Pack. I think the, uh, she'd said everything she wanted to say about the characters. I think the sales were not stellar enough that Marvel would, would you know fight the to keep the book alive it was just on it was just sort of i don't know if it was a rumor exactly it was just sort of a sense that we were coming to the end of an era uh things were changing behind the scenes at marvel the the magical stanley bullpen that i walked into that day in 1985 was changing on the corporate level down and it was affecting Jim Shooter, and it was affecting uh, the mood in the office. And what was really happening behind the scenes was the Marvel Age of Comics was coming to an end. Hmm. And I think I picked up on that. Kind of talking a little bit about that, and since you went from Power Pack to Superman, Ed209 was asking, what similarities did you find between your work on Power Pack and Superman? What similarities are there between Power Pack and Superman? Yeah. Well, I got to work with the greatest writer in comics on both of them. <laughs> what were these two entirely different people like <laughs> that happened to have the same initials and all the other letters in their names as well? Yeah. The similarities are that all the Superman books, thanks to Mike Carlin, the Superman books were being done like Marvel books. You know what I mean? In other words, what Marvel did with the Superman books was give DC its own mini Marvel age. Because on Superman, all the writers, all the pencilers, all the anchors, and even the colorists got to write the story together. We got to workshop the thing together in one room, the way Stan and Jack would, would workshop stuff. It was, it was a real partnership. It wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't the usual DC uh, assembly line 
where the artist never even, the penciler never even talked to the writer and just received a, a full script and then passed it on to uh, somebody else that they never met. Mike Carlin shook things up and created, gave DC its own miniature Marvel age. Everything was done plot first. Everything was done with the Marvel method. And so uh, the way of working on Superman was, as, as the real Marvel age was ending over at Marvel, DC had a renaissance because for a while, they and Batman and a couple of other books, this because of Mike Carlin's influence, decided to work Marvel style, Marvel method. And that's what boosted Superman's sales into the millions again. That's what created the DC renaissance, what they call now called the DC renaissance of the 90s, uh, was that for a brief shining moment in time, as the Marvel age was dying, it had a second life at DC for a little while. Excellent. That was a good question, by the way, Ed 209. That was a good question. <laughs> it actually it actually came with sort of a, uh, a journalistic exclusive bombshell answer, but there you go. <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, getting the, I was there, this is the behind the scenes, this is what it is actually like, this is what kind of feelings were, and you know, it's like, like you explaining, you went into Marvel and it was just this raucous at, you know, atmosphere where you're like, yeah, I could work here because this is really fun. And then seeing how with time goes, how things change. So it, it's really interesting to see that because, you know, being outsiders on that, I have no idea how comics are made. If it's done like, you know, if you're just like, well, you know, like you were saying, where it's just like you get information in, in from a bubble, you work on it in your bubble, you push it out to the next bubble and never shall they overlap kind of thing. Hearing the actual kind of like, yeah, here was the emotional feeling of that. Here was the actual background story. That That is amazing. So good answer. Uh, good question. Even better answer. <laughs> but now you're going to answer a question, hopefully, from our very good friend Tim Price, who has this massive bombshell for you to answer for us. And that is, what is your favorite brand of cheese or type? He loves questions about cheese. We don't, we don't judge him. Mm -hmm. And then what is John Henry Irons' favorite cheese? Ah, okay. It's journalism like this on our part that's sure to win us <laughs> all the awards. All right. For, for me, I have, I have two favorite cheeses. I can't quite uh, narrow it down to just one. Um, there's a Basque sheep's milk cheese mm. uh, that I'm very fond of. It's very sweet, uh, nutty, mild, uh, sort of a Swiss-like cheese, but just it's unique. And my other favorite cheese is uh, there's a Vermont cheddar. I like Vermont cheddar mm -hmm. very, very much. I would, I would stack most Vermont cheddars up to any cheese in the world, including cheddar from Cheddar, England. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not talking about your mild melt on a burger cheddar. I'm talking about your, your crunchy, full of crystals, super duper sharp, what they call in Maine rat cheese. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, the, like, like uh, this is not... This is not something you you shred onto your onto your taco. This is something you put on your tongue and let melt and savor. Okay. I'm talking about really wicked shap for my. <laughs> my like God, he busted out the New England <laughs> Boston accent. Fantastic. <laughs> I was going to say that sounds a lot like the uh, Cougar Gold from uh, Washington State University. Their their famous cheese. That's actually pretty good cheese. It's too mild, though. <laughs> okay. I was just thinking when you're talking about the crunchy crystalline thing of it, it's like... Oh, yeah. No, no. No, no. Cougar Gold is good. 
good. I know the cheese. Okay, but but it, it. Um, let's see. John Henry Iron. In case you're not familiar with the character, you created him with Wheezy. Yes. <laughs> this is what I have to put up with. Please do not take. No, 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 no. no. These are the. These are the deep life questions. Yeah. <laughs> these are the philosophical gems. These are the matters of weighty discussions that you, you know, you have to sit around at at places like what's the bar? The nerd out. Uh, places like nerd out and and sit around and discuss weighty issues yeah. of the world. <laughs> I would say John Henry Irons likes uh, a good strong Swiss cheese. Something something you can make. Something you can make a, a ham sandwich with mm. that's uh, that'll it'll hold up. <laughs> Something that's had holes driven into it. <laughs> yeah, that was All a good right. answer. Oh, with the rivets. Yeah, yeah, with the rivets. Yeah. Is that Tim Price? Is that Tim Price who likes the cheese? That's Tim yeah, Price. Tim Price continually asks cheese questions. Right with you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well. Thank you very much. Let's go ahead and start wrapping this up because uh, we've been talking for a long time and. We are going to have to probably do a round two. Just make two episodes. I am probably going to have to cut it into two episodes. That's perfectly fine. A couple of last questions for you. Is there anything that you're reading right now? What's on your nightstand that you are working your way through or what's, what's capturing your interest? Oh, um, I'm still catching up on squirrel girl. Okay. Comics. Really like squirrel girl. It's charming. It has a lot of the things about it that I like about power pack. So comics, I'd say Squirrel Girl. I also really like Dan Slott's uh, uh, Silver Surfer. Dan Slott and, and Dan Allred did a run on Silver Surfer two years ago, maybe. About 18 issues, I think, maybe more. It was like Doctor Who, sort of. It was all of space and time. And, you know, and the, the surfer had uh, a, a human companion with him, so he wasn't quite so palm nailed to the forehead mopey as it usually is and it was just it was charming and it was human and it had again it had a lot of the same human interests that, that power pack does book wise i'm looking at a, a book now about saturnino hernan who is a mexican painter from i guess the late 19th century and that's just that's just what's actually on my desk right there so that's why i'm twice that do you have anything that you'd like to plug or any projects that you're working on or anything of that nature I can tell you what I'm working on, but it's liable to not be out for a few years. Um, I'm working on a hard sci-fi series for Storm King, which is John Carpenter's wife, Sandy King Carpenter's uh, comic book company. Weezy's done some work for them as as well, totally separate from me. Kalel uh, and Adrian uh, have, uh, well, it's Kalel's story, he wrote it years ago. Uh, have written a hard sci-fi epic involving all kinds of tech and stuff like that that I'm not that good at. That's a real challenge for me. Uh, but it's a you know it's sort of a tin can horror genre akin to Alien, where something is going terribly wrong on the colony ship and they got to figure out what the hell is the matter before they all lose their humanity. It's called Terraformed. And don't look for it for at least two years. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of machinery to draw. Right. We will be anxiously awaiting it. Yeah, looking forward to that. It, uh, I like the premise. It sounds good. I always like those uh, 
the isolation, you know, the alien, the yeah. John Carpenter's thing, the alien, the thing. Yeah. yeah, it's very much it's very much in that vein. It's 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 about as different from Power Pack as you can get. <laughs> because there's a lot of goo and horror and and blood and exploding things and stuff like that. So it's John Botany as hell. Okay. I'm look, we're, we're looking forward to that. Okay. Give us one spoiler. What's one thing that explodes? Well, I got a, I got a page here with two of, the, two of the monsters, one of whom is my favorite. One of these poor guys, all his nerve endings are turning into eyeballs. Oh, that's horrifying. And? Yeah. Ah. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> oh, oh, my oh, goodness. that's cool. That is awesome. That is that is a mutated eye boy. That is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like eyeball monster. <laughs> but he on the next page he explodes. Okay. John, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I you know, you are always welcome to come back on the show. We would love to talk to you more anytime you would like to. Um, it, it's a complete joy. Some, maybe some point in time we're, we'll do a virtual panel with you, June, Wheezy, and anybody else we can possibly get on there. I still would love to get Oh, my Carl. gosh. That would be so fun. <laughs> I think that'd be fun. Yeah. I think that could be crazy. Get Terry Austin, too. Oh, yeah. Terry Austin is a big fan of the book. And speaking of Terry Austin, let's transition and talk about a book that we covered that Terry Austin wrote with a... Shout out time! We like to recognize those listeners that take time to write in or leave us a review. This is for episode number 60, The Great Gugam Ripoff. Guest starring Nicholas Prom from the Comic Reflections podcast. Al Sedano and Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Brian G. Charles Gears. Cindy Heineken. Chris at BTO Bat Books. Craig McNichols. Ed209. Gibson Gray. Green Lantern HG who says, great episode, guys, but I like anything with Punisher in it. As always, Carrie gets a trophy for being a cutie. Aww. Hal Jordan. Hoover Jeremiah in the 4 Million Years Later podcast. Jeremy Daw, who called it the Terry Austin masterpiece. Jeremy Wiggins. Lee. And Lee says that they vote for Katie as best kid for the same reasons Jeff gave her the worst. Anyone that punks Punisher is okay in their book. Mark O. Rogers. Matthew Fenner. Max Traver. Mitch Gillian. Nicholas Prom and the Comic Reflections Podcast. Thank you for being on the show, Nicholas. Thank you so very much. Sailor Bear Zodar. Sean and the Secret Voice and Beyond Podcast. Tim Price, the Podcrasher. Come on down. Waffles. It's no mystery, and I don't need to hire no private eye to know that y'all make one heck of an awesome podcast. The worst comic podcast ever with Colin Stapleton. We are Jeff and Rick Present, and we record and self-produce our podcast in Portland, Oregon, and Los Angeles. If you would like to talk with us, you can do so through Twitter at Jeff and Rick Present, our Facebook page, Jeff and Rick Present, our email address, Jeff and Rick Present, all one word at gmail.com, or at our website, Jeff and Rick Present.wordpress.com. Also, our YouTube site is Jeff and Rick Present. We are a proud supporter of the Hero Initiative, and we will be donating 10% of our Patreon donations to this great cause. We encourage everyone to give what they can to this worthwhile organization that helps the creators who provide us with such great content. Go to heroinitiative.org to find out more. Please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher. This helps other people find us. And as always, we want to thank the powerful people in our packs. 
my wife Cindy, and our daughter Carrie. My fiance Hillary, and our daughter Aurora. There are so many people in my life that I need to be thankful for, but my short list would certainly have to be my beautiful wife Judy, our amazing son Kellel, and Walter and Louise Simonson. We love, we love you. you. Until next time, costumes off. Our theme music is 80s action. All music is by Kevin McLeod and TheCompTech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. And you guys can fix it in post, right? Oh, I fixed tons of Rick stuff Rick does post. a lot of work. <laughs> Rick does a huge amount of work. Suck! And now here's where we have you say a line. And that line was, how about putting out a good stout beer and a stack of comic books? I've fallen for that trap more times than I'd like to admit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll say that, sure. <laughs> How about putting out a big stack of comic books and a nice stout beer? I fall into that drop. Yeah. Try it again. Take two. <laughs> Suck. Mm-mm. Hey, honey. Mm-mm. Say costumes Mm-mm. off. Can you say Actually, costumes? We don't, need to say, we don't need to say costumes off. Oh, yeah. John says it. We'll have Aurora say it anyway. You want to say costumes off? Can you say costumes off? Suck. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for still loving Power Pack after all these years. And this is John Bogdanov saying, costumes off.